Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Morning, everyone. We're uh, working through the book of James, or the faculty is, as uh, our um, expository series in these uh, first few weeks of the semester. And uh, as Mike has just uh, read to us, we're in James 1.13. I've got the privilege of the first three in the series, all of chapter one. Yesterday, I suggested that in 2021, we should count that we will uh, face trouble. And James addressed us on that score very helpfully, I think. Uh, Today, he tells us one thing to remember, and then tomorrow, we'll learn of one thing to do. The problem of evil is at the heart of this particular passage. Uh, You'll see the word evil comes up in verse 13. No one should say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil. And the problem of evil is a a big theological problem that you'll be learning about in different subjects, systematic theology, in apologetics, and so on. It's a philosophical problem. It's also a, a, a problem that the Bible addresses in different ways. I suppose I should give a disclaimer at this point and say I'm not a philosopher nor the son of a philosopher. I'm a humble Bible reader and uh, that was actually a Bible illusion as well for any of you who know your Bible. And uh, so don't expect uh, a great philosophical discussion at this point. Uh, When I did this subject in seminary myself, I learnt a line which makes me look like I know what I'm talking about and it's this. Uh, If God is good, he is not God. And if God is God, he is not good. So the problem of evil basically, did you follow that? How many of you actually follow? No, not even Scott followed that. What hope is there? (laughs) So if God is almighty, all-knowing, created everything, then he can't be good because there's evil in the world. And if God is good, then he can't be God. Did you follow that? Gotcha. Good. So um, so I I think of Scott because when I wrote on the... uh, uh, doctrine of the Trinity in Paul's letters once. I had Scott look at it to make sure I wasn't a heretic. <laughs> so, the problem of evil. Now, this passage addresses the problem of evil, but a kind of caveat disclaimer at the beginning, it doesn't give you the whole picture. It just addresses one particular thing, namely the issue of the character of God. Is God good when we have such an evil world? Uh, it also is very practical. So I think we'll see as we go along, James is like that. You get this, uh, lots of images and picture language to keep us uh, engaged. Uh, very practical down to earth, but also uh, very lofty theology. And that's exactly what we get here. So in relation to God and evil, in our passage this morning, James tells us four things. The first one is in verse 13. God never incites us to sin. Verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, I don't often start a sentence in a sermon like this, but in Greek, it's the same word that we had in the first part of uh, chapter one, namely trials. So God does test people, and because in Greek the word uh, can be translated or understood, as both trial and tempt, I think James is trying to do a pastoral thing here and help the readers who were reading in Greek, um, not to get confused and think that God tempts people. He does give us tests in order, as we saw yesterday, to bring us to maturity. Uh, We can be joyful about that. 
even though it, at times tests are very difficult, but he does not tempt people. Now, some of you will, well, all of you will know about sitting tests. The two tests, the two keys to sitting a test are being prepared and getting a decent examiner. Yep. Uh, you've got no control over the latter. And I've known in my uh, teaching career uh, several idiosyncratic and rather unfair examiners. And it's a difficult thing. The registry actually keeps a list. <laughs> None of them are on the faculty, but uh, when we go to an external examiner, I'll sometimes say to the registry, uh, how about if we use so-and-so? Oh, no, you can't do that. No, don't go with that one. So the question that we're really asking about God testing us is, is he out to get us? So I knew one colleague at a different institution who would basically be out to get the students on the tests. He would set tests based on the syllabus, whether or not he taught the syllabus in class. That's very interesting. Whenever you talk about a test, everyone goes very silent. And that's the way to get attention. That's a little pro tip if you're ever lecturing. Just say the word test and everyone listens. So that's the question, isn't it? Is God an unfair and cranky examiner? Uh, my last test was a COVID one, and it raises some anxiety. I mean, it's like, at the moment, it's 25 million to one that I'll be positive or that I'll fail. I'm not sure which way around to say that. Um, but uh, it does raise anxiety, and I think tests do raise anxiety. And for the original readers, the anxiety was this, that maybe God isn't good. Maybe that he's the one tempting me. He's the one who wants me to fail. And James says very clearly, God never incites us to sin. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So if not from God, where does evil come from? And James tells us in verses 14 and 15, and the answer is, we are each responsible for our own sin. Uh, now, what strikes us is the first words in verse 14, but each person is tempted. Now, in our day, that's kind of a controversial thing uh, because we basically think, or the culture teaches us to think, that uh, evil is someone else's problem. Our society has several cultural trends that mean we see evil in other groups, and we get quite angry about it, actually, um, but we don't see it in ourselves so much. So a couple of cultural trends, there's something called a culture of reflexive outrage. So in the online world, uh, you'll find hatred everywhere. Twitter's kind of uh, a cesspool of hatred, I'm told. Empathy is uh, nowhere to be found. This reflexive outrage leads to what are known as internet pylons and rabid twitch hunts. Yep, do you like that, twitch hunts? Quite... That wasn't me. And I think we, we live in a world where there's an ugly tribalism as well. Uh, whereas in the past, communities were held together by mutual love. Most communities now in the West are held together by mutual hatred, common en enemy intimacy. What I have in common with my group is we hate the other group and they're the evil ones. Uh, in the past, I mean, I'm, I'm painting it quite bleakly, but I think there's some truth to this. In the past... If you were caught out doing something and you made a genuine apology, then you were given a second chance. There but by the grace of God go I. It was said by Christians and non-Christians. Whereas these days, one strike and you're out. Today, evil is someone else's problem. 
Society is divided in several ways. Uh, we've got the so-called culture wars, for example, battles over social justice to do with things like prejudice and discrimination against minority groups, usually identified along the lines of gender, race, and sexuality. Uh, the oppressors, so you've got three groups, the oppressed, the allies of the oppressed, and the oppressors. The oppressors are accused of prejudice, discrimination, bigotry, and nepotism. The oppressed are accused by the oppressors of being lazy, entitled, envious, and bitter. And their allies are accused of being self-righteous, bullying, and of engaging in groupthink. Um, if you want more on this, there's uh, an evil subject at the Mega Intensive in August. All three, though, I think, are guilty of sins. And that's what our passage says. Each person is tempted. All three groups, everyone, in fact, should be wary of pride, greed, sexual exploitation, selfish ambition, corruption, violence, deception, ruthlessness, malice, raw self-interest, etc. Human evil is the original, diverse and inclusive industry. Every person is tempted by evil. And James uses two points, two images. He likes a mixed metaphor, by the way, which normally I'm not fond of, but it is biblical. Um, and uh, he uses two images to drive home his point. He says that each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. It's kind of a fishing metaphor. I don't know if we've got fishing people amongst us. Uh, I've occasionally tried fishing. It's just a waste of time, basically, when I do it. And I'm actually... Uh, an example which doesn't work here because uh, the idea that uh, the bait will lure the fish and the hook will snare it this has never worked for me. In fact, my worst memory of fishing was sitting in a very small boat, constantly re-hooking on bait while two of my children threw the bait and the hooks over the side and by the end of the thing I was really feeling quite sick. But this is a good metaphor for sin because it's exactly what happens. Something small happens and then uh, that we're tempted by something and sin eventually lures us, hooks us, sin entices and then entraps us. The second metaphor is even better. It's a birth metaphor. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So some desires, it's, it seems, have a family tree uh, desire here is like a woman who conceives a child named Sin and uh, then Sin grows up and has a child named Death. Now, by the, just as an aside, uh, many times young families are looking for baby names in the Bible. Sin and Death, I wouldn't go for either of them, by the way. <laughs> Whereas in the previous passage yesterday, if you were here, you'll remember God brings the crown of life. So you can see this contrast between death and life. Desire conceives, gives birth to sin, when fully grown, produces death. And this is a theme you see in the book of Proverbs, of course, where uh, desire is a seductress, and when you have union with the seductress, you go down to the depths of Sheol. So each person is tempted in these ways. There's a couple of things to say. Um, each of us will have different sorts of temptations, I think all of us, though, will have uh, the top three, in my view, so uh, pride, greed, and lust, and uh, those three are with you the whole of your life. 
and uh, others will have different problems to deal with. I like the way Martin Luther put it though, he said that uh, you can, can't stop a bird landing on your head, but you can stop it building a nest there. So there's nothing wrong with temptation per se, and this is an important point, especially for the sensitive souls amongst us, none of whom are on the faculty in my experience. So, so basically the problem comes if you talk too much about temptation, people who, who feel uh, quite sensitive about these things think that being tempted is itself the problem. It's not. As Luther said, you've just got to shoo the bird off your head when it lands. And uh, I, so it's important to realise that Christian maturity is not about less temptation, it's about less succumbing to temptation. So just that little point I think needs to be made. What are the temptations for us at college uh, that might snare us and give birth to sin? Well, I think um, each of us are in a very selfish um, uh, pastime at college. So whether you're on the faculty or a student, we teach you to be self-focused. Yep. You've got your assignments, you look at your semester ahead, and the better students among you are already planning when you'll hand things in, and I recommend setting your own due dates because the, they'll all pile up if you don't. And uh, so it's very easy for us to have that little bird land, self-interest, and then someone comes along and needs your help, an opportunity to serve someone, and uh, instead of doing that, you built a nest, and uh, sin is given birth from that particular um, temptation. I think, I was thinking this morning, what are the things I pray for at college? I don't think I pray for our academic excellence and I don't pray that much for our finances. The main thing I pray for is our culture on campus. Do we have a culture on campus that will reflect the gospel? Yep. Or are we succumbing to temptation to live as selfish people in the midst of uh, what should be otherwise. Uh, there are many opportunities to serve others. Uh, disunity is always a temptation because people will disagree with others, will inconvenience others. And I think what we need to do is to make sure that we don't end up in a college of reflexive outrage and dare I say it, a culture of contempt. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. God never incites us to sin. We are each responsible for our sin. To drive home things, uh, James makes a third point from the other side. He said that God is not responsible for our temptation or sin, but he gives good gifts so the third point is that God is good all the time. It's easy to doubt the goodness of God in an evil world. And uh, I think, actually, as a non-philosopher, I think the problem of evil is for other worldviews because the Christian faith faces the problem of evil quite squarely. It's all about the problem of evil and how that can be solved. Now, I'm sure there are philosophical problems to be faced, but the one thing, whether you are a philosopher or not, is we might doubt the goodness of God in this evil world. The world is not as it originally was, and the world is not as it's going to be. And we might think of God as only being good in those two places. What James tells us is that God is good 
right now. God is not out to get you. God is good all the time. James grounds his teaching on what is true about God. So it's, it's wonderfully practical based on the character of God. And this is how he puts it. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God's light is constant, unlike the, uh, the sun, the moon and the stars, which move and change in appearance every night. Certainly a staple doctrine of the doctrine of God in the Bible is his goodness. I was trying to think, and the theologians can tell me later, I was trying to think, the three biggest attributes of God. If you were to describe God, what are the three attributes you'd think of? I think holiness, Scott's looking worried, <laughs> love, I can give you verses for these, and goodness, yeah, the goodness of God. The Lord Jesus himself said this. He said, no one is good but God alone. And uh, he knows how to good, uh, give good gifts to his children from the Sermon on the Mount. There are a number of allusions in James to his brother's famous sermon. Uh, God is the father of heavenly lights. This is admittedly a really odd phrase. It's quite unique in the Bible. Um, I think it's got to do with the context of the heavenly lights, um, namely the sun, the moon and the stars being changeable, whereas God is not changeable. God's the father of his creation, including the heavenly luminaries over which he has power. And Psalm 136, it says, he made the great lights. And shadows are always moving, aren't they? That, that's one of the things about our world. And again, we have this beautiful figure of speech. And that's one thing you want to do in, in, in learning at college, how to interpret metaphors and similes. And uh, this one's about the constancy of God, the unchangeableness of God. James could have said it literally. So Philo, the uh, Jewish Alexandrian philosopher, no less, put it this way. Without a metaphor, listen, James could have said this. Every created thing must necessarily undergo change, for this is its property. Even though unchangeableness is the property of God. So it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And I prefer James's words because an image uh, brings it across even more powerfully. So unlike the shadows... The father of creation who made the heavenly lights is stable, unshifting, reliable in his goodness. So this is good news, friends. God is good all the time. God has an undivided integrity at, at his heart. And at the heart of that integrity is his goodness, his love, his holiness. And that goodness means that he never deviates from his singular purpose of raising us, his children, to maturity. That's what we saw yesterday. God's purpose is to raise us to maturity. God never incites us to sin. We are each responsible for our sin. God is good all the time. The fourth point takes things further and answers the question, can you give us an example, James, of the goodness of God? So if I said to you, what's an example of the goodness of God? You might think, well, the food that we eat, the shelter, some miracle that you saw happen... Um, uh, some other blessing in life, uh, Ridley College, a superb faculty, that kind of thing. Not a very good audience today, but anyway, I'll keep trying. What James points to as the best evidence of the goodness of God is in verse 18. He chose to give us birth, new birth. The fact of the new birth 
is the best example of the goodness of God. It's more family of God stuff. So brothers and sisters language, sin giving birth, God giving birth. So it's, it's quite a beautiful, uh, consistent metaphor throughout our passage. The birth is given through the word of truth and elsewhere in the New Testament, the word of truth is the gospel. I love the way it starts out. He chose to do this. Other versions of the Bible have through the exercise of his will, the fulfillment of his own purpose by his own choice. The new birth is free, undeserved, unconstrained. It's the best example that we can think of, of the goodness of God. The cross reassures us of God's love. The new birth reassures us of his goodness. And then it says why he did this, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The first fruits is, of course, a way of referring to Christians in the New Testament, but it's a forward-looking way. It's saying that the whole creation will be redeemed and we're the beginning of that. The ultimate purpose of our trials, temptations is our transformation. And what we must do, friends, is to learn to trust the goodness of God and the word of truth. Tests and evil can cause us to doubt the goodness of God. James says, no, God never incites us to sin. We are each responsible for our own sin. God is good all the time and the new birth proves that. Now I'm told in East Africa, they have a greeting among the Christians, which is commonly used. And I'm gonna try it with anyone here who's from East Africa originally. Oh, here's someone in the front row, excellent. <laughs> so let's try this and if it works, we'll all do it together. God is good. All the time. And all the time. God is good. Okay, you got it? <laughs> Let's do it together. So I say God is good, you say all the time. I say all the time, you say God is good. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. Amen.